Welcome to Security Architecture Podcast, where we help cybersecurity professionals to stay ahead of the curve and ensure they are successful in their cybersecurity journey. Hi, I'm Evgeny. Hi, I'm Dimitri. We have Chase here to talk about browser isolation, and we're kicking our season about browser isolation, season number four. Chase, thank you very much. Second time to be here. Tell us about yourself and how you've been. Yeah, thanks for um, having me. I'm uh, Chief Strategy Officer at Ericom Software. Uh, we do a lot of stuff around browser isolation and ZT. Um, and other than that, I just stay busy. So I'm trying to you know, do what I can where I can. Chase, can you give us some insight into what is the concept around browser isolation? Well, the really basic side of it is if you think about kind of how you do everything pretty much every day, you're going to use the browser for the majority of what you do. Regular average user, right? Maybe admins and programmers do some slightly different things, but most of us typically interface with email. We interface with the web content, et cetera, with the browser. And that's where malicious activity likely is to occur. So therefore, we want to put something between the user and the internet, the browser, that is safer. And the way that we do that is with a combination of controls that are applied to browser that help you manage, maintain, and control that apparatus. And it could be a virtualization sort of approach. It could be a remote sort of approach. It could be your own custom, crazy cool browser thing that you run locally. But the point is somehow or some way I'm going to get between the user and the internet and use the browser as the isolation capability. Now, it's not a proxy. It's something else a bit. So let's go to history. Like we started around eight years ago. Tell us about the history and maybe we can talk more about this. Yeah, so there's been a lot of evolution. Um, and the funny thing is, is this has been kind of a, an underlying evolution, I think, in the security space, right? So like eight years ago, six years ago, there was, there was some browser isolation things coming in. Everybody talks about Citrix and then there was Fireglass. And there's been now recently, there's some new sort of custom browser things that are in the space. And it's actually tracked really along the lines of uh, the ability to process and compute quicker, better, faster, because what you see is where we started out and where we've gone is browser isolation back in the day was really clippy, like really kludgy. And people really got pissed off at it really quickly because things didn't work right. Web pages didn't render correctly. YouTube was an absolute mess. Now we've moved into a space where especially the remote browser side of this it's pretty seamless for the user. There are better and worse solutions, to be perfectly frank, but you as the user, most of the time, you're, the latency has been kind of taken care of. And that's where the evolution has really taken place because no, no one wants to use a clippy, kludgy, slow, buggy sort of browser to do things on the internet. Chase, you have mentioned before that there is different approaches to browser isolation. There is client approach, there's a remote approach. Can you explain a bit more what each one of them means and what's the differences? Yeah, so the client approach really is where you're running a, a, an isolated browser on your local machine. And that browser is kind of operating in a, a controlled virtual space where you have an ability to do things to isolate that browser. Like you can put, you can't click on links, you can't download software, you can't upload files, whatever, but it's it's running on your machine. The remote side of it is, I'm doing all of that, but I'm doing it in the cloud. So really what's happening is you're piped out to the cloud. Something is going on in the cloud in a container, and then their pixelated sort of stream is coming back to you like it's a live interactive browser. Now, 
I think the difference between the two really is if you accept that you're trying to keep as big a control plane out there between the users and infection and the internet, I personally am a bigger fan of using the remote browser side of it because the worst case scenario, you brick a container in the cloud and it's not actually getting to my machine. We have seen, and there's noted research around this, instances of folks on a local box having something hop from the local box to their uh, or excuse me, from the from the browser, the isolated browser to their actual local machine, which effectively renders that security control moot. Um, so that's the difference. The 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 really intricate thing is to do that remote browser side in the cloud and do it super fast with lots of process and compute, so that people don't know that the browser is executing in the cloud. If you're using remote, you're not so affected by this type of exploit. Yeah, I mean, so like I do a lot of research going out and trying to download, you know, different things and see if I can do some research on malware and in phishing sites and whatever else. And I use the remote browser stuff because I want a big, I want a big uh, moat between me and bad things. And funny enough, the few times I've gotten into something really malicious, it has, to be honest, has bricked the heck out of my container. But the worst thing that happened was my container got dorked up, it rebooted in 15 seconds, and I was back on the internet. So it wasn't, but if I had done that locally, it would have been a really bad day. I guess it's also dependent technology you're using because there is several aspects of technology and we are very, very welcome and intrigued to see how everybody solved the problem. And I have a kind of follow-up questions because you mentioned about how the pixelating working. It's almost like you're watching a movie in a way. You're not getting all the information but you're getting HTML5 stream that you cannot interact, but you have the view that you're browsing this. But it's bringing potentially a problem. How do I download files? How do I upload files? How do I manage files? How do I play a video game? That's the, the proprietary side of this. So I think if you look at the vendors in the space, right, and you look at the stuff that Ericom's doing and look at some of the others, Ericom spent a lot of time investing in making sure that the interactivity was not interrupted. And that I, I would say from, you know, if I put my Forrester hat back on, right, and go back to the analyst days, the difference really that I sort of saw was if I'm doing things like you said, and it's just a stream and I can't interact with what I need to interact with, it's going to be a dead issue because no one wants to be on a dead browser. So the ability to have that interactivity there, but render all the bad stuff out because you're scrubbing it in that cloud system, that's where the difference is made. And funny enough, if you go off and run two uh, browser tabs side by side and run one with remote browser isolation and run one without, what you'll notice is all the iframes and JavaScripts and redirects and weird things that you know, sites do that could potentially be used for a compromise vector get scrubbed out in the cloud instead of running it locally. And that, that's the difference. And for the average user, like I said, not a developer, not like a hardcore IT person, the average user, they just want to look at the internet and do whatever the hell they're doing on the internet. They're not really going down into a lot of the more um, intricate pieces of how a, a site actually works. From a technology perspective, what in your mind difference between your proxy and browser isolation? Because there are similarity, but they still work a bit differently. I think the, the real difference is the browser isolation is really specific to the, the browser operating in the cloud in a container. The proxy side, which now in most instances you look at, it's kind of, um, you know, becoming, yeah, it's becoming a thing where the proxy enables the remote browser side and the remote browser side works with the proxy. 
that's where the, the evolution is kind of going. So have a debate. If I have a Citrix environment on a VM, how's it different than the browser isolation? It's honestly not that different. The difference will be when you try, have you ever tried to like take a Citrix and use the browser or whatever else and fire up six or eight tabs or do something that's actually pretty process intensive and then have it send that stuff back to you really quickly? You, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the reason you haven't is because it's not fun and you'll wind up with clippy buggy weird stuff. Um, so it's not it's not that different conceptually, theoretically. It's different in the user interactivity and the uh, the um, latency. In the, in the browser world, like I learned this just from working where I'm at right now, anything more than a quarter of a second latency is like a big problem. Um, and quarter of a second goes by really quickly if you're not doing it in a very specific manner. Having it at the area of 250 milliseconds, is, that's the acceptable latency that you would expect from remote browser resolution solution. Yeah, that's that's kind of the sweet spot is to be less than quarter second because if you're talking about interactive content, YouTube, online gaming, those types of things, for some, I don't know whether it's just humans or this you know way, but for some reason, anything more than that, you kind of will start to notice like, well, wait a minute, there's some clip pixelation, there's some weird clips going on there. You start to have negative user experience. And I mean, you guys know, like I do, the moment a user is aware of a security control, what's the first thing they try and do? Go around it. That's that's very interesting. So how does the browser isolation affect usability? There are some, still some websites and some tools that require you to run Internet Explorer 8 or 9 yeah. or even worse. How does it work with browser isolation? I mean, the internet's a big place, right? So there's always going to be some sites that are kind of different that have weird backdoor thingies or old uh, archaic builds or something like that, that there's going to be maybe some rendering issues or some you know stuff will show up in places that it's kind of not supposed to be. Most of the time, the way that that works with somebody that's doing remote browser isolation is you put a ticket in and go, hey, this site doesn't look right. And then they go fix it. And then it's stored in the container to do that correctly the next time you go to it. However, if you're just out there browsing the internet on, you know, willy nilly doing what you're doing and you run across a weird site, most people would just close the tab and move on to the next thing anyway. How about the functionality of the extension of the browsers, right? Like, you know, we're using many of them like for spelling. Would they work as browser isolation? Yeah, it works. It just depends on, like I said, because you guys are kicking off a season around this. I think you'll kind of see this as you go through and, and try some of these systems out. If the vendor hasn't really put a lot of effort into specific stuff around what you're talking about, books, bookmarks and plugins and all those things, then you'll notice it when you go use those on that remote browser side. If they've they really put the effort in there, you won't notice that it's ever even a problem. I mean, you'll have to install it um, in some instances, but other than that, that's about it. How would browser isolation play with other vendors or other tools? EDR or SASE, Euro filtering, CTNA. Well, uh, back to your point earlier, right? Where proxies are kind of becoming a pretty important piece of this whole thing. A lot of the time now you see where the proxy and the browser isolation tie together. So they play via APIs with a lot of those systems and you're getting additional telemetry off of that. I will say from, from the perspective of analytics and visibility, I like to be able to see what users are doing on the internet. And a lot of times you'll notice it's really good for verifying and validating who your kind of Johnny and Sally clicks a lot are for phishing. 
you'll see that we just trained all these people, but yet we have these, I don't know, 20 users that keep clicking phishing links no matter what we do. So we should probably apply another control there. Or you'll see that people are trying to find ways to get around something else, you know, a, a DLP control, or they found some weird way of doing DNS shenanigans to get past firewalling or whatever. You'll see it in the browser because that's where all the interactivity occurs. So there's that. But it does typically play well with most other solutions, just depending on how the uh, API configurations and the hooks are. It's actually one of our questions, but I want to pick your brain. How important is to get the data of where people browsing and the problems they see back to the same or back to the SOC? Because as you mentioned, as the end user, I just browse. I don't really care what's happening. It doesn't work. I, I move on. Maybe I do. But the back on the SOC, people need to know that Evgeny going to sites that potentially has malware. I think it's I think it's two pieces to that. Number one, it's a careful line to not be sort of draconian and like looking at what people are doing on the regular internet because that makes people uncomfortable, which is fair. But the other side of it is from the perspective of like the sock and the sim, I really do get some very good uh, insight into how people are interacting and where infections are occurring because you'll you'll notice it. You'll see that people people will you click on things that they shouldn't click on. People will try and download stuff from sites that you're sitting there going like as a sock operator, why would you ever do this? But they're they're doing it. So I think it's very useful to get that telemetry and use that information. But you do have to kind of walk a fine line with your employees and make sure that they either A, know that you're doing this or B, that you have a dial to kind of dial in there of what you're monitoring and how you're monitoring it. The last question. I'm hearing more and more these days about the organization trying to reduce the risk by blocking access to certain regional locations for obvious reasons. How does browser isolation help helps in such cases? Well, that one's a little bit tricky. Depending on the solution, some of them do have a capability to say kind of geographic isolation based on content that's going to be rendered in domains and those types of things like you know, can't go to a .cn or a .ru or a .mx or whatever. So you put you can put those controls in there. And then the other side is back to that kind of proxy integration piece and firewalls and all the other controls you have. It's a good way to have a frontline indicator of a control you're putting to say geographic resolution is pushed out to that user and to that uh, internet side of things. I, I think in the context of enabling a strategy like ZT, I personally think remote browser actually makes a lot of sense because I'm kind of not trusting that the user knows what they're doing on their on the internet, and I can put controls around them to keep them safer. Um, and it's not it's not to be you know hateful to the user, but it's just to say the internet's a big dangerous place, and there's no way that a human can possibly keep up with all the bad stuff. Let me put a seatbelt in front of you so that you don't wreck as you're going down the road. So even so, Dimitri says last question. So I'll do last 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 question. You mentioned ZT. Tell me more about reverse browser isolation when I do remote desktop or basically I'm doing network access control or remote access. Yeah, that, that's becoming a more and more of a topic. Um, there's a lot more use cases showing up in there. Uh, it's it, That's a really intricate, tricky thing to do right and not have it go haywire really quickly. And I say that because there's been... Well, vendors that have kind of, if you look across the history of this, we talked about earlier, there's been vendors that came up really quickly and said they did that. And then they didn't do it very well and they went away or, you know, died a horrible death in vendor space or something like that. 
but it, it's it's a tricky nuance to be able to do that kind of reverse to the browser, push the content back, parse it on the inbound side. You know, it's it's not an easy thing to do. It's a valid use case, but it's not something that I see a lot of folks have mastered um, very well. I guess we'll see. Chase, yeah. thank you very much. Any questions to us? I'm interested to see where you guys go with this. I'm hoping you get your hands on some of these uh, solutions and can you know make your own judgments on how they how they operate and which ones you think uh, meet the need for security architecture. Very good point. Thank you, Chase. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and join us for our next episode.